good morning. I'm bringing the energy. I just hope you don't mind. I'm excited about what we're going to do today. We're in week two of our series through the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Greater. Jesus is Better. And uh, because we're doing a lot of comparisons as we go through, if you're, Jesus is greater than what? There's a lot of comparisons in the book of Hebrews. I did a little Googling of funny comparisons, and I came across analogies or comparisons that actual high school students have used in their papers. So I'm going to give you five pairs, and I'm going to do pairs on purpose. You'll see as we get into Hebrews this morning, I've got a reason for doing this. But five pairs of these comparisons or analogies as they've shown up on real high school papers. The first two make it clear that these are high school students, okay? Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field toward each other like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m., traveling at 55 miles per hour, the other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at a speed of 35 miles per hour. Or how about this? I like this. He spoke with the wisdom that can only come from experience. Like a guy who went blind because he looked at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it and now goes around the country speaking at high schools about the dangers of looking at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it. There you go. Comparisons. Here are two high school students creatively comparing something to falling in love. She grew on him like she was a colony of E. coli and he was room temperature Canadian beef. <laughs> or here, how about this? Here's our second pair. He was deeply in love when she spoke. He thought he heard bells as if she were a garbage truck backing up. Here's a pair that is, it's a comparison, but, but is it? I just think these are awesome. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. <laughs> Or I like this one. I told Kami this one when I read it. He was as tall as a six foot three inch tree. <laughs> it's great. Um, all right. He, these two are going to go the route of comparison by going the opposite route, right? Even in his last years, granddad had a mind like a steel trap, only one that had been left out so long that it had rusted shut. Or this one, the little boat gently drifted across the pond exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. Let's let it sit in for a second. All right, our last pair is around the theme of animals. He was as lame as a duck, not the metaphorical lame duck either, but a real duck that was actually lame, maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. And our final one. The ballerina rose gracefully on point and extended one slender leg behind her like a dog at a fire hydrant. That's a, I can picture that perfectly. Anyway, there you go. Five pairs of comparisons from high school students. What we're going to see is that the author of Hebrews can do comparisons as well, and he is actually even more skilled at this. And I told you last week, we're doing 13 chapters in 12 weeks, and we only did four verses last week. That was our introduction. So we're going to do the rest of chapter one and all of chapter two today. Are you ready? We're going to cover some ground. 
I think it'll work. I think, I think you'll be able to get it. And my goal really is, I mean, you can always go deeper and deeper. What I want to do is give you handles so that if you do go back and go deeper into what the author of Hebrews has to say, you, you, have, a, you have a framework. You understand what you're doing. And so even for this week, you really only need to remember two words, and it'll help you understand what we're going to talk about, even if we go a little too fast at points. But the two words to remember are exaltation and incarnation. So we're going to talk about this exalted God, and then we're going to talk about how this exalted God incarnation became human, lowered himself. <laughs> I mean, if, if you get that, that, that's enough for understanding what we're going to talk about, but we'll get into the finer arguments. The author of Hebrews is a very educated, uh, intelligent person, uh, and I want to remind you, this letter was written roughly 1,960 years ago. A long time ago, paper wasn't as readily available. If you were to look at these ancient manuscripts, they're conserving paper. They're being, it's a dense letter. It's compacted. You don't just quote endlessly other sources because you don't have room for it. So if you're going to quote the Old Testament, you just do one verse, right? Because you're referencing maybe the whole section. If you were to look at these, you would see that it's just constant, letter after letter. There's no space. There's no punctuation. It's just, it just looks a bunch of letters, but you would read through it. You would know where one word ends and the next word begins. But they didn't do italics. They didn't do bold. They didn't do underlining. They didn't do different size letters. It's just, that's what they did to conserve paper to communicate in the, in the ancient world. So what we're going to see in Hebrews, and I'll point it out, maybe not everywhere, but, but the author is trained, we would say, in, probably in the synagogue, rabbinic training on how to communicate and make arguments and even communicate and write literarily all kinds of rhetorical and literary techniques. And so out of the gate, we're going to start with this first section, verses 5 to 14, and you're going to see an inclusio out of the gate. So again, you just have a stream of letters. How do you know? There's no headings. There's no verses. There's no paragraph indentation. In verse 5, chapter 1, it begins, For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. You'll see when we get to verse 13, he's going to say, And God never said to any of the angels. You would you'd be an, a mindful reader. You would see that and you would know, okay, this is a section. This is a unit, and the author is doing something in these verses that are meant to be read and studied and reflected upon together. We're entering into an argument where, where the author is going to... Angels are really awesome. They're amazing. I mean, pretty much wherever you live in the history of humanity, angels are cool. And the author is going to say, yeah, angels are cool, but Jesus is greater. <laughs> and he's going to do this through six different Old Testament passages, three pairs. And again, this is a rabbinic technique. He's looking at verses that share their verbal connections. They share similar language throughout the Old Testament. And he's holding them up together to make this argument and these connections to show how Jesus, the Son, is greater than the angels. Right? We're at the very beginning of the letter, and it's, it's going to grow and grow as we go through this letter. But this is where he begins. So I won't cite everything. If your Bible's like mine, the verses are at the bottom. I'll call out a few of these. But he's going to start, this first pair has to deal with the unique relationship the Son has with the Father. Because we're talking about who this Jesus is. Remember, if you were with us last week, the, the, the audience receiving this letter is facing persecution. We, we talked about a crisis of faith. And the author is saying, 
there's nowhere else you can go but Jesus. Once you've met Jesus, you can't go back. So hang in there. And and the author believes that if you understand who Jesus is and what he's done, you'll stay with him because you know, like Peter, Lord, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So we begin, God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The unique relationship of the father with the son. God also said, 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. And and the author feels empowered to use this to cite these verses because this is the language Jesus used as he talked about his unique relationship with the father. And we talked a lot about that in our last series. Then we get to the next pair, and the next pair is grouped around this idea that the angels are inferior. (laughs) That's what the argument he's making. So he says, "And, and when he brought his supreme son, his firstborn son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. So obviously, if the angels are worshiping the son, the son is supreme, right? That's pretty straightforward. Regarding the angels, verse 7, he says, He sends his angels like the winds, his servants like flames of fire. Again, the angels are servants to the Son, so of course the Son is superior. And then we'll get to this last pair, and this is going to talk about the Son's eternal nature and enthronement over the universe, which is going to be a, a major issue then for the rest of what we'll talk about this morning. Verse 8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. This eternal language. He's king forever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. There's no one like the Son. His throne endures forever and ever. And again, again, parallel to that in a sense, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and you made the heavens with your hands. You have always been. We talked a lot about this in our last series about the eternal community of love that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son has always been. He's been there from the beginning. He's eternal. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out. There's, here's a metaphor. They wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. Now, as we journey through Hebrews, we're going to talk quite a bit about death. Uh, Even today, the death of Jesus, but life. Life is this pervasive theme, and we'll talk about this as we go. I just want to pause. We'll keep going, but I want to pause for a second and talk about this idea of eternality. They will perish, but you will continue. That this world is passing away and transitory, but the Son is the Lord who will last. When we get to the end of the letter, a verse you may be familiar with, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternal is the word that stands against death. As we go through this letter, we're going to maybe, maybe be taught or at least reminded that even death can't undo what this life that we encounter in Jesus is. Death is going to swallow Jesus, not realizing that the life that is in Jesus is too much for death. <laughs> I like to think about that. Jesus's life is just too much for death. There's too much of God's life going on for death to last. <laughs> or one, one author said it this way, the infinity of God's life 
just exhausts the finitude of death. I like that. That's key for Hebrews. That's what's going on. There's just too much life in Jesus. Now, I told you last week, really the foundational Old Testament text that is going to echo. Uh, I challenged some of you to read Hebrews. My 14-year-old son has taken the challenge. And he was reading it yesterday, and he's asking me about Melchizedek. We'll talk about Melchizedek in the future. But, but if you read through Psalm 110, it's a short psalm. It won't even take you five minutes to read it, but it's at, the, it's at the center of what the author of Hebrews is thinking and doing. And so here, we'll talk about Melchizedek in the future. That's other parts of Psalm 110. But here, verse 13, it says, And God never said to any of the angels, he's going to quote Psalm 110, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Again, this, letter, this, this psalm is going to be so important as we work through the letter. But what I want you to notice now, as it's important for today, is that the, here the Son, the Lord, is all things are going to be subjected to him. But it seems to imply a future subjecting, right? In the future, all things will be subjugated to the Son. That's there in Psalm 110. It's what you, that's how it reads. That's what you see. Just hang on to that idea, as the author is going to then kind of round up this comparison of the angels and Jesus. Verse 14, just in case you haven't been paying attention, therefore angels are only servants. We already read that, right? Spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So now there's a new clue in the argument. Now we're also going to talk about how important people are, humanity uh, we could go even deeper with this on how much reflection on the creation account is happening and all of that. But then we turn our attention. Oh, well, what I want to say here is we're talking about how amazing Jesus is. So before we turn our attention, I want to remind you, we're going to be comparing Jesus to the Old Testament all the way through the letter. But at no point in the letter is the author ever disparaging the Old Testament. There is no looking down upon the, the angels or, or the law or, or any of these figures that we're going to see from the Old Testament, we read the Old Testament as a good Jewish worldview. It was all a gift. It was all a gift. And, and to, to try to lessen that actually weakens the argument. To say angels aren't that cool, but Jesus is better, that doesn't make Jesus that great. No, angels are amazing. It's just that Jesus is better. It's the same kind of logic I actually use with Jay sometimes. He plays basketball, and he's on a good team, but sometimes they lose. And sometimes in his frustration, Jay will be like, I can't believe we lost. That team stinks. And I'm like, you realize what you're saying. If you're saying that team stinks and you lost to them, what are you saying about your team? <laughs> no, you should say that team was really good. They were a pretty good team. Your team is good. You just lost to a better team, but they're a good team. Don't say they stink because then you really stink. It's kind of the reverse logic here. Angels are great. They're amazing. They're incredible. Jesus is just better. There's nothing like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. All right, so we get to the end of chapter one, and, and the author is hoping that everyone's shaking their head and saying, yep, Jesus is better than angels. No doubt about it. Jesus better than angels. And so he's going to take his first opportunity. I told you it's kind of like a sermon, and we're going to go from exposition to exhortation back and forth. There's five warning passages, pretty intense challenges I'm not going to spend, this is the first, I'm not going to spend as much time on this one. It's pretty short, and we have four more opportunities to do it as we go through the letter, and we're covering a lot of ground. But I want to read it. I want you to hear it, and I, and I, I want you to hear it as a challenge, as a warning. 
again, we, we talked about last week. You find yourself in these places where you have questions or doubts. The author of Hebrews wants you to see Jesus as Peter does in John chapter 6. Lord, to who else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's what the author is saying here. Look, you, you can't go back. Jesus has come. He's better than everything you've seen before. You can't go back. Don't, it's not necessarily meant, and we'll get into this more in some of these later challenges. It's not meant necessarily to make you afraid, but it is meant to make you uncomfortable. It is meant to wake you up, to understand the seriousness of the moment and the decisions you're making. If you reject Jesus, where else can you go? Where else can you go? So chapter 2, verse 1, So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. <laughs> I love that verse. If you've been around Crossview for a while, you've heard me say on numerous occasions, you'll never drift into the Jesus way. That's what the author is saying. You'll never drift. You'll drift, but it won't be into the Jesus way. Now, he's primarily probably using like nautical metaphors, like a, a boat drifting off course. One author I was reading was also talking about, maybe it's like if you're like in the river and your ring just slides off your finger. You don't even realize that you just get out of the water and your ring's gone. But I was thinking this morning, living in Illinois, drift means something different to me on a day like today. And I only live three miles from church, but I get up real early on Sunday mornings to prepare and pray. I took a different route to church this morning because I knew there was drifting on the road. <laughs> and I didn't want to drift with the drifting, right? I wanted to stay on course. That's exactly what the author is saying. Don't drift. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Verse 2, for the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm. And again, this will get unwrapped and unpacked as we go through the whole letter. But he's talking about the whole Old Testament here as he talks about this. And these were Hebrews. These were Jewish people who loved the law. They loved what God had done through the Old Testament scriptures. And they took it very seriously. And so the author is going to say every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. It was serious. You took this really seriously. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? Look, you already respected the Old Testament. But what Jesus has done is new and better. Why would you, why would you disrespect that? You can't. It's not even an option. Verse 4, and God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Again, he's just talking about why this message is so trustworthy and so profound. And I'll just throw this out there because sometimes people are told Hebrews was written by Paul and we don't really know. And some people think that, but most scholars today don't think it was written by Paul and this is one of the verses why. So one of the reasons is the structure of the letter. It doesn't look like Paul's other letters. The other reason is that Paul goes out of his way to make sure that you and I know that he got his gospel directly from Jesus himself. And then he, then he met with the apostles and confirmed that it was the correct gospel. Here, the author of Hebrews seems to be saying, yeah, we heard the gospel through the apostolic testimony. That just doesn't sound like Paul. So another reason why we think it was written by someone other than Paul. Again, we don't know. But we'll keep moving. So that's our first challenge, but that will reiterate through the letter. It'll, it'll repeat itself, and it's going to strengthen. So we'll feel that more and more. But we're going to, I told you, exaltation and incarnation. So now chapter 2 is going to kind of shift, 
and again, brilliantly, like the way the author uses and understands the Old Testament narrative is really impressive. But chapter 2, picking up in verse 5, and furthermore, he's still linked, he's still thinking, he's very thorough. It is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place, the scriptures say, and he's going to quote, he says somewhere, somebody said, he knows. He knows who said it. He knows where it is. He's really smart. Psalm 8. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? And listen to the language. Or a son of man that you should care for him. For a, yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels. This is incarnation language. Which is why he goes to Psalm 8. And crown them with glory and honor. Now that's exaltation language. That's why he goes here. But he's holding it up, right? He stopped for exhortation, but he's, he's literally and rhetorically walking with you through this argument. And he's holding Psalm 8 up next to Psalm 110 that we already read. Why? Because of this next line. You gave them authority over all things. And so this is good rabbinic teaching. You've got Psalm 110 that says, oh, you will, you will have authority over all things. And then you have Psalm 8 that says you do have authority over all things. And you can feel the tension. And the author sees it, but he's trying to explain this in light of each other. So he goes on to say, now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we, he, he understands because remember, these are people who have committed their lives to Jesus, but they're in a crisis of faith. And they're seeing evil play out in front of them. And they're experiencing persecution. And they're wondering what they will do. And so he says that we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. Evil, sin, death, we still see it. Verse 9, we will come back to this. What we do see is Jesus. I love that contrast. We have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Because he suffered death. It's the same logic Paul uses in that famous hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Because he suffered death. Because he revealed the heart of love. This is what love looks like. This is what it means to truly be human. This is, like fir- this is like new Adam, second Adam theology. Jesus is the first truly human one who actually does live out the will and the heart of the Father. And because of that, we know he's the firstborn. He's supreme. He's sup- superior. He is crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. So he does this for us. But we'll keep reading in a second. But let me say a few things here about this confusion and and working through this idea, the subjugation of the enemies. Is it in the future or has it already happened? You know, the, 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 the audience receiving the letter would be wondering, are the enemies subjected now or do we have to wait for the future? And the author of Hebrews would say, yes. It's one of those either ors, both ands, right? Yes. It's, I mean, it just is. Yes, they've been defeated on the cross, but yes, we await Jesus' second coming. And subjecting everything, God left nothing that is independent from the lordship of Christ. There's nothing in the universe over which Jesus does not say mine. He is Lord of everything. There's nothing not subject to him. That's what Psalm 8 is saying. But we don't see everything subjected to him. That's what Psalm 110 is saying. 
And theologians have wrestled with this. And, and I think the easiest phrase to grab onto to try to understand what it's saying is, is the already and the not yet. Jesus is already Lord. He's already exalted Lord of the universe. The kingdom of God is already present among us, but it's not yet fully consummated. As Jesus is patient in his love, trying to seek more into his kingdom, we see that he allows evil and death and sin to continue. But we do know that there will come a day when he returns and all of that is gone. Life will truly and fully overwhelm death and it will be no more. And what the author then says is we don't see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus. We look around us and we see all kinds of powers out of control. It looks sometimes like the forces of darkness are winning in places. We don't always see all things submitted to him, but we do see Jesus. And we know the story of Jesus, that he went into the heart of darkness and he came out victorious. That he lowered himself for a short time. He suffered and tasted death for everyone. And now he's been crowned with glory and honor as he has conquered sin, death, and evil. That's the story of Jesus. We see Jesus. Recently, I heard a story about a basketball player. Some of you will know his name. Some of you won't. His name was Lou Williams. Sweet Lou. When I heard this story, he was in Atlanta one night driving his car and he gets carjacked at gunpoint. A pretty intense moment. I've never had to live through anything like that. But it turns out that the guy carjacking him is a Lou Williams fan. So he's holding him at gunpoint, but he sees that it's Lou Williams and he doesn't know, you're one of my favorite players of all time. I love watching you play. I talk to everyone about your moves on the courts. What a moment. He's introduced himself to Lou Williams at gunpoint. And then he recognizes who he is. <laughs> and the story goes, I mean, I, I think it's a true story. The story ends with Lou Williams taking this man to dinner. What a story. It's the heart of God that he would befriend us when that was our introduction to him. <laughs> but that's some of the good news of Jesus, isn't it? We bring death against God and then we recognize who this is. And once we see his face, he befriends us. What did I say earlier? Jesus is too much for death. The carjacker is overcome and in awe of this man he loves to watch play basketball. And it shakes him out of this pattern of violence that's been his life. And somehow it ends in friendship. <laughs> and this is what Jesus does once we see him. We, we, we see him. We see his face. We recognize who he is. And it summons out of us our own humanity. I mean, again, that's what Psalm 8 is talking about. What does it mean to be human? It summons out of us our own humanity. The moment you recognize God, you begin to recognize yourself. This is who I am. This is what I was made for, to love and serve others as God has served and loved me, and then to rule and participate with God as he rules in glory and honor. It's an incredible story, incredible vocation. And I think there's a sense that the author of Hebrews would say it's not possible to see God as he is and not love him. 
If I'm not in love with God, it's because I can't see him yet. I haven't had that moment of recognition. I don't realize that the, the, the person I'm carjacking is sweet Lou Williams. But once you recognize sweet Lou, you drop the gun and you go to dinner. And part of what Hebrews is going to say, part of what the New Testament tells us is that nothing else will deliver you from your rebellion and your violence against God and others but that recognition that this is my friend. This is my friend. And it comes to us as an invitation for all of us to see the face of God, an invitation to participate in this abundant life that overwhelms death. It's too much for death. There's no room for death. There's just too much life. The finitude of death cannot stand up to the infinity of life. We recognize who God is, and then we are invited to join him in his life because he's just pouring over. All, he's just giving out life. That's what he does. So then it raises the question, well, how? How do we move forward with this life? And I think we're not, this is a, this, these next uh, eight or nine verses really dense. But, but really, the rest of the letter, we're not going to, we won't unpack this all. The rest of the letter is going to walk us through this in many ways. It's just a, a theological foundation. So let me read it, uh, and then we'll just make a few more thoughts before we head to communion. But picking up in verse 10, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. That's what I mean. You and I are invited into this life, this Jesus life that overwhelms death. We introduce ourselves to him by bringing death to him and he just overwhelms it with life. He wants to bring many children to glory and it was only right that he should make Jesus, again, and this is significant for the whole New Testament, certainly in Hebrews, through his suffering, a perfect leader, a pioneer, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. Do you, have you been tracking with us since the beginning of the sermon? <laughs> we started with this unique relationship that only the son has with the father, but now in the son, in Jesus, and only Jesus, you and I have right relationship with the father again. <laughs> our brokenness, our rebellion, our carjacking, <laughs> now we're befriended. Now because of what Jesus has done, we are befriended by God. We are friends with God. Too much life. There's just too much life. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He's the big brother. He's going to quote two more Old Testament passages. Again, we could say more about it, but primarily about this idea that he's bringing in brothers and sisters and that we can trust God. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. And he also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. Again, this is dense. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. That's incarnation right there. God chose, in a sense, to add humanity to his identity, if you will. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. So again, we're going to go through Hebrews. Who has the power of death? The devil does. What's the power? God has life. God has the power of life. The devil has the power of death. We are invited into life. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Which we'll talk more. I was going to do it here, but... 
I always have more I want to say, and then I got to remind myself, well, I got 10 more weeks. Okay, we'll talk about the fear of death later. It'll, it'll, it'll come back up. Verse 16, we also know that the son did not come to help angels. Again, this is all one unit. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Again, and this even goes back to the creation account in ways that I don't have time to talk through right now. But he's talking about how Human beings were the last created in the creation account back at the beginning of Genesis, but they are elevated. They're elevated by God. I mean, it's incredible how important humanity is to the biblical narrative. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us in solidarity with us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. We'll talk a lot about that in the weeks ahead. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Again, it's all connected to his high priesthood. But what I want you to hear just for this morning, we'll come back to this other stuff. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So the audience is receiving this letter. They're facing persecution. They're asking hard questions. And the author is reminding them, remember how great Jesus is? He's better than the angels. And don't forget what he then did. He entered into your story and he understands what it means to suffer. He has been tested as well. And he is your pioneer. If you follow him and trust him, he will get you through this. How do we get, we keep, we see Jesus. We keep our eyes locked in on Jesus. That's the argument that's going to reign through this book. Solidarity, the solidarity of Christ with us. He knows, I mean, he knows what you're going through. It's incredible when you read through the Gospels and you see how many difficult circumstances Jesus had to face. And yet he remained nothing but love. Perfect obedience to the Father. He shows us what it means to be human. And if we can, this is what discipleship is. If we can learn from him how to live like him, we will know a little bit more of this abundant life. We will begin to taste and see how good our Lord is. So let me kind of wrap this up as we head to communion. In the Bible, it is no contradiction to say that this high and exalted God also dwells with those who are inwardly crushed and dragged down by the troubles of life. With people who are at the end of their resources, the people Jesus called poor in spirit. God promises to put new life into them by being with them himself. He's the big brother. He's in solidarity. He's been tested and he'll show us how to walk through the testing ourselves. The high and lofty one comes down, as it were, from his exalted place in order to dwell with the very needy people like you and me. God is with us. God comes into our lives, comes alongside us. We may not at first be aware of his presence, but he's there. He is a good big brother the one looking out for you, trying to show you what he's learned and how to navigate the challenges of life. For anyone who realizes that they cannot cope with life out of their own resources, Jesus is the presence with you that you need, raising you up when you're crushed and inspiring and giving you new life when you're dispirited. Remember, Jesus, by enduring the worst with us and for us, He enters our lives in in, in a situation we faced. He's been tested so he can help us when we are being tested. 
He became the loving presence that transforms and brings new life to those of us who see how much we need it. And one of the remarkable parts of our stories and and what what the author of Hebrews wants to just beat again and again and again into our heads and into our minds every chapter is that Jesus and Jesus alone is at the center of this thing. He's at the center of the story. He's at the center of the universe. He's holding all things together. Paul says he fills all things everywhere with himself. He's the one who created. He's the beginning and the end. Uh, one, one of the authors I, I read this week said he's the creator and the terminator. <laughs> he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's, he's central to everything and he's the center of our lives. And once you understand that, that there's no, once, once Jesus is your center, nothing, no, nothing else can, can be your center. You'll, you'll be off. You'll be off balance. You'll be decentered if you try to put anything else there. Jesus is the one who, he emptied himself. He set aside self-interest for us and for our salvation. And so I got a little homework assignment for you. You don't have to do it. And then an invitation. But the first homework assignment, because I'm so convinced that the discipleship journey begins by learning about Jesus, who he is. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. But as you learn about Jesus, it opens up your mind, your, your eyesight to, to learn more about yourself. I think self-awareness is critical if you're going to grow. What do we say sometimes? Come as you are, but don't stay where you are. If you're going to grow, you need to be self-aware. So your homework assignment, and you're probably the only one who can do it. Maybe those who love you best could do it too, but you don't want to hear it from them. So you better do it yourself. But, but as we're going through the series and talking about how central Jesus is, Try to pay attention to what your center is. (laughs) Because as much as, I mean, you're here. I mean, especially you're you're tuning in online. You came through the snow or the cold. You're you're centering your life on Jesus, but we all drift. It's just part of being human. And when you drift, where do you recenter yourself? How quickly do you realize that you've centered yourself on something else? And there's all kinds of things. There's good things and there's bad things. There's, I mean, one of our biggest struggles with idolatry is we make a whole lot of good things more important than Jesus. Just be self-aware. You come across things that are really amazing to yourself. Remind yourself how much greater Jesus is. <laughs> Try to be aware. Where are you? And, and I will tell you, I think in the culture we live in, when I, because I drift, and when I drift, I think usually I recenter around my own self-interest. Most of the problems I create in the house that I live in come from when I've drifted and I've recentered myself around what's best for Jeff. But you got to be honest enough with yourself to see it, to own it, to confess it. And then you got to decide, do do I want to be centered on Jesus or not? Because if you want to be centered on Jesus, it's pretty serious. It's very important. And it's your only hope for life. This life that overwhelms death, you're only going to get it in Jesus. So that's your own homework if you choose to do it. Try to pay attention to where do you recenter yourself? What does that look like when you drift? And the second thing is an invitation. I want to invite you, I did this last week, to prayer school. It'll be Wednesday nights, three weeks, starting January 24th, an hour and a half. It'll be here at church. It'll either be in the sanctuary or the fellowship hall. I think there's a small group that meets here, and I just don't want to get in their way. So we can do either space. I'm not really that worried about it. But, but what we'll do in prayer school Again, this is, I went to prayer school about eight years ago, and I think for me, it was maybe the greatest gift God's given me in the last 10 years. 
And it, it's, it's nothing special or magical. It's just, for me, it's been a, a way to structure my prayer life to keep Jesus at the center. I mean, I've, I told you last week, I've, I drifted. Even as a pastor, I drifted and somehow found my desires and my feelings at the center of my prayer life. There's no transformation in that. But there's a lot of transformation if you keep Jesus at the center. He's meant to be the center. There's no one like him. He's better and greater. He is the ultimate gift of life to all of us. So if you want to hear more about that or learn more about that, you can join us at prayer school. Um, I'm looking forward to that. But I want to pray now, and then we'll transition into a time of communion. So, and if you're at home, I know there's a few more people at home this week. If you want to run and get communion elements while I'm praying, it's really cool too. Heavenly Father, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we, we want to be good students. We want to be disciples. We want to be learners. And we do want to do, even if it pushes us, even if it's a little hard, we want to do the hard work of learning. Because I think what the author of Hebrews is communicating to us, if we can get our minds around this, we often talk here across you about learning how to read the Old Testament with Jesus as our guide. The author of Hebrews wants to teach us how to do that. <laughs> And so make us good learners. I mean, even if some of us haven't been in school for a while and this argumentation pushes us, help us to, to, to engage intellectually and to try to understand to the degree that we can what your word is communicating to us so that we're sharpened, <laughs> so that we're sharpened and that we can live this life. And I pray, too, that you would give us the humility and the honesty to say where we've drifted and where we go when we drift. We're all going to drift, but we would love it if we don't drift as far as we have in the past. Or if we do drift, we can recenter ourselves quicker, faster, sooner. Because we know that the only life, abundant life that we need comes from you. And we want to center ourselves on you, Jesus. There's no one like you. You're the greatest. We love you. We worship you. And we want to know you more. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.